Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. Great to have you coming together to hear about how the Lord, our God, is our Good Shepherd. <clears throat> It'd be really great for you to have your Bibles open at John chapter 10 and to have a little finger mark in Ezekiel 34. So if you can get a little bit of the outline or something like that, just pop it into Ezekiel 34. We're doing something that we've done a couple of times before. That is, we're going to be reading Ezekiel 34, but Sharon will be reading it from the seat using a handheld mic during the talk. So when you hear the disembodied voice, don't panic. It's just Sharon down here. Yes. Thank you, Sharon, for doing that. Oh, thank you so much, Dave. Now, many of us will remember this gesture. Yeah? We know that one, right? I believe that that's sort of going a little bit out of fashion these days, and nowadays the young people do this for making a call. Because when was the last time you picked up a handset that looked like that? Right? Handsets now look like this for phones. So, some imagery, you see, dates and can date quite quickly. And when we come to passages like the one we have today about shepherds and all of that sort of stuff, it's good to remember that God wrote the Bible into a historical and cultural context. It's not sort of this abstract, universal language of, of truths that, in philosophical terms that people of all times can hear in exactly the same way. And part of our task as we come to the scriptures, as we wrestle and we dig and we think about the Bible, is to understand how it was understood back then. Which is in part, anyway, why it's really important for theological colleges to keep on teaching Greek and Hebrew and even Aramaic, the original languages. Because words don't mean exactly what they mean today. You know, words back then have slightly different nuances and feelings and, and connotations. Images are a little bit different. Now here, in the passage today, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Back then, everyone either knew a shepherd or was a shepherd. It was really very simple. Now, I don't know if any of you actually even know a shepherd. I <clears throat> have been a shepherd, albeit very briefly on my cousin's farm out in the west, but we corralled sheep around. What we did was we jumped in a ute and used dogs and corralled them that way. That's not what he's talking about here. That's not on view in our passage. Middle Eastern shepherds in the first century led their sheep. They walked in front. And you know what sheep are like? They'll follow anyone. That's why they're called sheep. You, know, you just follow. You know, if somebody leads, I'm going to walk. I walk off the edge of a cliff. Okay, I'm going to follow you. Right, that sort of thing. And, they had, and the shepherds had calls. They had whistles and calls that they could call and the whole flock would follow them. So to understand what's going on here, we can't think of shepherds like we know them in Australia with helicopters and cars and dogs and motorbikes and all of that sort of stuff, but shepherds in their context. And then we can start to see what the imagery is trying to tell us about who Jesus is and his relationship to his people. And, and really, what Jesus is doing here is pretty clear. He's colourfully portraying some of the features in the relationship that he has, that he sustains, that he, he works with his people. And we, we look at things like what kind of leader is he? What kind of shepherd is he? And how should we see our relationship to him? 
on your little pieces of paper that you got when you came in, there's a little outline, and I'm up to point two, Jesus knows his own people. And this is from verses one to five. So if you've got your Bibles open, that's where we are. In many villages, there was an independent enclosure where several families would keep their sheep who were watched over at night by a watchman. So they would bring their sheep into the enclosure at night and hire a gatekeeper who would keep out intruders or wild animals. Then the next morning, the shepherds would come back to the sheep pen and the keeper would allow only in the appropriate shepherds, the ones he knew dropped in the sheep last night, and they would call, they would do their little whistle, their little tune, whatever it was, and their fox would follow them out. Verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Okay, you get the picture? There's this place, this this corral of sheep with the gatekeeper there and there are sheep of various different shepherds in there. And so this shepherd comes and he calls his sheep. And the sheep that know that call follow him because they know he's about to take them out to get food. He knows his own sheep and they know him. There's a certain call and the sheep follow him. But this shepherd knows his sheep so intimately he can name them. He can say, hey, Graham, come on. It's time for you to come. Trevor, yes, you. Suzanne, yes. uh, You're not terrible when you get up here and you have sudden blanks on people's names. (laughs) Anyway, you you get the idea. He didn't have a blank on the names. He knew their names. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Naomi. Uh, The sheep pen is the Jewish community. But there's part of that community within the sheep pen that he calls out by name. And they follow him. He brings them all out. And he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now, that raises a question for us. Do we know the voice of Christ? And how do we know it? After all, we know people follow the wrong leaders. They're led astray. They're led by the wrong shepherd. But we know his voice is what he says. Now, not necessarily automatically. It's not sort of necessarily this sudden, you know, imbuing of, oh, I automatically... No, it's because we listen to his voice for ourselves. We wrestle with his voice as he speaks in the Bible. And by contrast, thieves and robbers do not intend good. They don't want good for the sheep. They want to steal the sheep. They want to destroy the sheep. The gatekeeper would never let them in. So they climb in, not through the gate. They don't come through the gate. All the way through John, Jesus is full of allusions to the Old Testament. And often in the Old Testament, there are prophetic judgments on the religious leaders of the day, using language of sheep farming like this. Behind much of John 10 is Ezekiel chapter 34, which Sharon is now going to read part of for us. The actual passages will come up on the screen, as in the the references, so you can note them down if you want. But this... Thanks, Sharon. 
The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who, take, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals. But you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. Because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds, and I will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock, so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. It's a terrible denunciation. It's, it's an awful way of speaking about the leaders of a religious community. But then, in Ezekiel 34, the, the tone changes a bit. And it, using the same idea of shepherd, the shepherd is actually shown to be God himself. Listen as Sharon reads this next little section for us, for how many times he uses the first person personal pronoun, I. Okay, thank you. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. See, all the way through that part of the passage, God is taking over the role of the shepherd. He's becoming the shepherd that the the other shepherds should have been. He's the good shepherd. And then it goes on to say this. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. 
I, the Lord, have spoken. So knowing this, having that in the background, when Jesus comes along in John chapter 10 and says, I am the good shepherd, for those who have ears to hear, there is this messianic claim. He's claiming to be the one sent by God as the good shepherd, as the Messiah, as God's chosen one. He's not just saying, I'm, I'm a really good religious leader and everyone else that's come before me has been a bad one. Well, I'm different to the hopeless ones you've had in the past. No, he's claiming to be this good shepherd. And for those who really listen, he's actually saying something even more. God himself has promised to come. God himself is the shepherd. And Jesus has already said, as we heard a few weeks ago back in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am, you know, there's this great claim to, to godness. And it is this one, the I am, Yahweh, he is the good shepherd, the greatest of all David's sons. So Jesus picks up this idea and he contrasts the good shepherd himself, the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34, with those who don't care for the sheep. And the difference is specially driven home in this part and it depends on his own personal knowledge of his sheep. Now, all Near Eastern shepherds stood and called their flock apart. They all did that and they still do that in the Near in Middle East today. But he goes the next step and calls his own sheep by name and they hear his voice and they follow him. Now, this is, is frankly astonishing if you think about it. Biblical Christianity is creedal. Right? Now, that means we have these creeds and later on we're going to say the Nicene Creed together, which is this agreement of belief. There are these sets of beliefs that Christians have and we will rehearse them together today. Biblical Christianity is religious and, and even has one or two rituals. You know, we will do one today. We'll do this ritual, this, this sacrament called the Lord's Supper. A few weeks ago, we did another one called baptism. But it can't be re reduced to religion and ritual. But really, at its very heart... What Christianity, what biblical Christianity is really, or real Christianity is about, is knowing God and being known by him. Knowing the good shepherd and the good shepherd knowing your name. And Jesus is not the kind of leader who simply demands worship but doesn't know who follows him. God knows us. Not just in the sense that he knows everybody and everything, which he does. He's got this thing, this, this thing called omniscience, knowing all things. He doesn't just know us like that, but in the sense that he owns his people as his. They are mine, he says. He knows them personally and they know him personally. The, he concerns himself with their welfare. He's not simply demanding things of them. He knows them. He knows us. He knows you. And he loves you. And he cares for you. What a comfort that is. What a comfort that is for those of us that struggle or, or, or feel alone or we're fearful in our world. We have a shepherd caring 
for us. And Jesus is that good shepherd. Verse 6. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Now, the Pharisees knew that Jesus was using a figure of speech, this metaphor, this, this imagery. Jesus clearly wasn't a sheep herder. He wasn't being followed around by a bunch of little sheep. But they didn't pick up the connections with the Old Testament. They didn't see what sort of claim he was making. They certainly didn't understand the depth of what was going on, the depth of his love for his people. But then Jesus changes up the imagery. Therefore, Jesus, verse 7, Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Now, gate is, is full of imagery, and we could go into it for some time. It'd be worth looking in Matthew's Gospel about the wide gate and the narrow gate, but we, we don't have time today. But you can see the sort of enclosure they might have used in the day. In fact, this is a real one from Palestine, near Mikmash. And, and you can see the little gap over on the, the left-hand side of that imagery where at night the sheep would all go into through that hole and then the shepherd would lay down in front of that hole so the sheep wouldn't come out without him and nothing could get in without him knowing about it. You see, there's no gatekeeper in that image. There's only one shepherd with his own sheep in this enclosure and he leads them out and he leads them in. He leads them out to find pasture, to find food, to find nourishment and he nurtures them and he leads them into the enclosure at night for safety. So verse 8, All who have come before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. So you see, Jesus, point three, nurtures his people. He cares for his people. And this in and out language of coming in and going out and finding pasture is found in Numbers 27, where Moses says this, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So you see, it's all coming together. He's picking up what's going on in Ezekiel. He's picking up also what's going on, which we haven't looked at in Isaiah 25 and Jeremiah 25 and, and Zechariah 11 and 12. And it's all coming together. And he is the one who leads the people out to the rich pasture lands. And he brings them in again for safety and the Lord's people do have a shepherd who is the gate himself others who claim to be saviours are not saviours now that doesn't mean that there are no good prophets and there are no good kings, Moses and David and, and the, the, the writing prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, people like that, they all had their roles but anyone who came and claimed to be a shepherd in this way of powerfully saving his people himself, of being the gate himself, of being the good shepherd himself, are just out for destruction. They're not real. They're not true. You see, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Because they're not the good shepherd. Now, often leaders come with high promises. 
but then do nothing more than fleece the sheep. Now, we see it so much in the political arena, don't we? We, we see it, nations turn to deliverers uh, like Stalin or Mao and Hitler and others that we could name from our time, and you can fill in the blanks there, as they promise greatness. But in the end, so many are in it just for themselves. They've only come to destroy. Now, before we think, oh, it's all of them, religious leaders are no better. The savage Iran-Iraq war, was that any better? Who inspired that? That was religious. And to our shame, there are those who have claimed Christ's name and set out in our world in similar brutality. But Jesus, Jesus, you see, is focusing on God's flock. That is his concern. And even religious leaders in the Christian church can savage the flock in all kinds of ways. I mean, when we allow ministers, leaders in our church, who walk away from God's truths in the Bible, what are we doing? Are we nurturing the flock? Are we protecting the flock by doing that? Or those that we see perhaps on TV or in other places who quite clearly have so little gospel and so much fleecing of the sheep. Have they protected the flock? Have they exalted Christian truth and godliness? Or have they actually held it up for ridicule? Have they made it a joke? And I have seen, not here, in local churches, power politics, one-upmanship, those more interested in a reputation for holiness and a reputation for power than either true holiness or real nurture. Verse 10. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Now, it's important to understand that full life does not simply mean more life. What it means is this imagery is fat contented sheep that's the image isn't it we're talking about sheep how do you have a full life as a sheep you become fat and contented you're safe from oppression you're well nourished you're secure an abundant life a full life and so for us it doesn't mean that we just get everything we want uh, becoming greedy and selfish ourselves materialistic fat in that sense it actually means that we know our shepherd We know our God and our spiritual life grows. Our spiritual life flourishes. The abundant life, you see, does not have self-fulfillment as an end in itself, as a purpose in itself, but will fulfil us because of the great privilege of belonging to Christ's flock. We so easily look for fulfilment in all the wrong places. Instead, we should look to Jesus, follow him, listen to him. Jesus, you see, came to nurture his people, came to nurture us and to give us life to the full. Point four, Jesus dies for his own people. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
Now that is an astonishing statement. It could mean just that the good shepherd is prepared to die for his sheep, like David was, you know. A bear comes to attack his flock and he's prepared to die to protect his flock. He's prepared to risk his life to fight off the lion, to save the sheep. Because after all, it would be quite crazy, wouldn't it, for a shepherd to go out and actually offer his life as a sacrifice for the sheep. You know, come and get me, lion. You know, that, that would be stupid because once you're gone, what happens to the sheep then? Well, then that's dessert, isn't it? Despite that, despite how crazy that seems, that is exactly what Jesus does. It's clear, it's clear that he is a very unusual good shepherd indeed. He intends to die for his sheep. And he's doing so because his father asked him to. And this is what makes him the good shepherd. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. Verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. I need to take it up again. But Jesus laying down his life, it's, it's not the end of the story. It's what Jesus has come to do, but it's not the end, is it? We know the end of the story because death was not the end for Jesus. He laid down his life, but as it says, he also took it up again. He rose from the dead. Verse 18, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Just as back in John chapter 5, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. See, the father has commissioned him. He, he, he's put him out there to give his life. And Jesus does it. Jesus obeys his father. Jesus complies. And compared to the leaders who sacrifice nothing or who call on other people to sacrifice for them, what we have is very different. We have a saviour who not only risked everything, but who gave everything. Now, I want to show three implications of this. The first one is that Jesus is eminently approachable, especially for those who hurt. Now, I was recently introduced, listening to a sermon, to Edward Shillitoe, the First World War poet, who saw the effects of the war, and he wrote this in part, part of his, his poem. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. To those who are crushed, to those who are burdened and wounded, hurting, dying, there is something very wonderful about a good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. The shepherd who understands, who has lived the pain of rejection, of marginalisation, of hatred, of bigotry and of terrible, terrible abuse and utter forsakenness. 
his wounds speak to our wounds. He understands our pain. Jesus is eminently approachable. Secondly, while it speaks to our emotions, it's not only an emotional appeal. It certainly speaks deeply to us there. But it also shows us how and why we are his flock. He gives his life for the sheep so that we may be his sheep. He purchases, is one of the words that the Bible uses, us for himself. And this theme comes up over and over again. He creates the flock by his death. The shepherd died and the sheep lives. In dying his sheep, we have life. But there's another pastoral implication. It shows us what kind of pastors the church should have today. And I don't know anybody, any pastor, including myself, who doesn't read this passage with a little bit of trembling in their hearts. But pastor simply means shepherd. And this prescribes what it means to be a pastor. The Apostle Peter says this, chapter 5, verse 2, Be shepherds, pastors of God's flock, that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You see, the model for pastoral care, the model for a a true pastor, not just the paid pastors, anybody, Anybody who seeks to care for others is that of the chief pastor, the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And finally, Jesus transforms his own people. By his death, you see, Jesus brings in other sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now what this means is that in addition to the sheep that Jesus has amongst the Jewish people, there are others that he's going to draw in from amongst everyone else, the Gentiles. And they will be one flock with one shepherd. So 1 Corinthians 12, which we looked at a little while ago, says this, For we were all baptised by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. He brings us all together in one flock with one shepherd. And Jesus is the shepherd of that whole flock. That is the church, one flock, one shepherd, all by his death. Then at the end of our reading, there's this little twist. There's a little, you could feel it, you know, shepherd, 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 and then it goes on, then the Jews who heard these words were again divided. What? Why has he gone there? Why has he suddenly gone back? Many of them said he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, remember that in the New Testament, as it was originally written, there are no chapter divisions, There are no verse divisions and there's no break between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of uh, chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. 
Here is what John 1.1 looks like in the original. You see there's no punctuation, there's no space between words, there's, right, there's no verse numbers, there's no chapter numbers. Chapter numbers were introduced in the, fourth, in the fourth century and verse numbers in 1551. So we've got a long, you know... In chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who's born blind. We heard about it last week. Great sermon. Go back and listen to it if you didn't hear it last week. And that's just unheard of. And what were the Pharisees and the religious leaders doing at that moment? They were criticising. They're wondering whether Jesus is the real deal, whether he's orthodox, whether he's, you know, but they're not helping people. They're not nurturing the flock. They're bad shepherds. So after the contrast in chapter 9 between one who actually gives sight to the blind and the religious leaders who are nitpicking and criticising and threatening to excommunicate people, after that contrast, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The others, let the reader understand, just come to ravage and steal the flock. John makes sure that we remember what kicked off this discussion, the account of the healing of the man born blind. We're taking back in this sort of flashback. He starts off with this theme, comes back to the theme, asking us to think of everything that's come in between in that light. Jesus actually gives sight to the blind. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? In other words, unlike these false religious leaders who criticise and make rules and ravage the flock, Jesus actually transforms people. He dies to give them life. He opens their eyes so that they can see. You see, real Christianity is not simply joining a club, socialising people into a congregation, into a church meeting, into a group. It's not just about getting people to feel comfortable, though it's good that people feel comfortable. I'm happy that you feel comfortable here. But it's not just about that. Real Christianity is about transformation. John chapter 3, the good shepherd ensures that people are born again. John chapter 4, he says that people will never thirst again. John chapter 5 chapter 6, that people will never hunger again. And John chapter 9, that they were blind, but now they see. You see the transformations going on. And in chapter 10, he brings the transformation of a full life, of an abundant life. In other words, he transforms people. It's not just a religious club that people are recruited into by signing a certain statement of faith. It's a transformation of our very being that is slowly happening throughout our life. So, as unusual as the shepherd image is to most of us, what does it tell us of Jesus' relationships with his people? Well, we've already looked at a whole lot of them, haven't we? Jesus knows his people. He knows us by name. He cares for us by name. Jesus nurtures his people. He leads us into pasture. He gives us abundant life. He, he opens up who we are into a world that he has made for us. Jesus transforms his own people because he dies for his people. But the transformation is not yet complete. But one, way, one day it will be. 
can we turn aside? Can we turn our backs? Can we walk away from a shepherd like that? Everyone follows someone or something. Everyone does. But even if it's just yourself. And so this asks, to which flock do we belong? Do we listen to Jesus' voice? Are we regularly steeping ourselves in the words of Jesus, in the scriptures, so that we know him and we know how to follow him? There is no better way of life than following the good shepherd who knows you, who nurtures you, who died for you, and who transforms you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are our good shepherd and you know, love and nurture us. And you have died that we may be forgiven and transformed. May we always follow your voice and with the writer of the letter of the Hebrews we pray. Now, may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip us with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now we're going to sing a song now, All People That On Earth Do Dwell. It's a wonderful song about our glorious God and what he's done for us, how he cares for us, and how we worship him.